The Start. On Demand. On Demand. Premier Heather Stephenson joined us this morning in what we hope becomes a regular visit. And today we talked to her about a few things like the vaccine mandate for truckers, as well as the ICU hospitalization vaccination ratio. And how she says they are looking at changing the way that they share and reveal data as it pertains to hospitalizations. We also talked today about work-life balance and setting boundaries at work because the pandemic has potentially messed up those boundaries for you. So how do you redraw those boundaries in a way that doesn't get you fired? And as you'll hear in a moment, I had a situation on Monday night that kind of ruined Tuesday for me before it even began. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. This is the Tuesday, January 25th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and as this cold continues, it's a Tuesday, and I've often said Tuesday is my least favorite day of the week, but I was bound and determined not to be defeated by Tuesday. I'm going to get to bed at a half-decent time. Went to bed, I don't know, 9, 9.30, and just as I was falling asleep, so I was just kind of crossing the, 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 the dividing line, so to speak, into the realm of rest and sleep, and um, I hear this, and I'm oh. thinking, what? What is happening in my apartment? Is this, that can't be my work. It's not my alarm clock, is it? So, you know, because I've, I've now re- reached that grogginess state, so I stumble out of bed to find out what's happening. And, uh, and it's my fire alarm, and I can hear doors slamming throughout my suite, and people are vacating the building. I'm like, I guess I got to get dressed and go downstairs. And, um, and then at 10.45, they gave the all clear, and I lumbered back upstairs, and uh, yeah, so defeated by Tuesday, Greg, before it even started. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that, Brett, and that noise is is something dreadful, and it, can you imagine if you were in an absolute dead sleep being awoken by that, and then you, you know, you have to put some clothes on and then make your way downstairs. I'm curious to know, what percentage of people in your building do you figure actually got on the elevator or took the stairs down how did you evacuate and where did you all where did you all meet so as far as every, as far as i could tell i think everybody was taking the stairs um but uh, i for a percentage i was curious about that because there were a few dozen people downstairs but i thought this can't this can't be the full population of my building. There's 26 floors in this building and just a few dozen people. So I think a lot of people probably just waited it out. Uh, be, Do you have the option in your... I used to be in an apartment building in Toronto where you could actually hit a button in your suite to mute the sound. And then oh. it would just move into the hallway. And it, it's really always shocked me that that was an option. Like, yeah, that can't I'm be I'm going to roll the dice here. So I'm just going to hit this button and I can still hear it. It's not like the alarm goes away because it's so loud. But then I yeah. always wondered the same thing in an apartment building because there's no way everyone's clearing like they're supposed to. If Right? Like there's hundreds of people in that building. There's yeah. got to be. A, yeah, so they're just not coming out. Can yeah. you say that's on 13th floor, not 15th? I'm going to 
Just see what happens here. And uh, well, and to be fair, there are a lot of older residents in that suite, and going down the stairs might just not be a realistic right. option for them. So, uh, I, if I were in that position, I too would wait it out until it was like, all right, I have to get out of this building. Uh, I don't have that button, Loren. If it, although, well, pff, maybe it's hiding somewhere, and I just don't know. Um, but I probably shouldn't locate that because no, I would be that guy to just push the yeah. button and go back to bed. Yeah, I, I wish I did, and it just always. I was like, this is how I'll go down: the lazy girl who hit the button and rolled over. You know, like <laughs> oh my, this, yeah, it's so dark. <laughs> well, I did learn a couple of things from it, though. One. I have got to get new glasses because as I got down, I just put my glasses on and went downstairs and then I remembered, oh yeah, these glasses are like 20 years old and I only wear them around my apartment when I'm not wearing my contact lenses. I can't see anything out of my glasses. So got to get my new glasses and I really do need a go bag because by the time I got downstairs, I realized if this building actually goes down all I have are the clothes on my back and these crappy glasses. I don't even have a pair of contact lenses. Um, Did you have your wallet? I have my wallet. I have my phone. I have Did my wallet. Did you have your car keys? I have my car keys. Okay. So I had to, I had the bare bones necessities, but uh, yeah, I didn't have my golf clubs. Like it would have been an absolute calamity. <laughs> anyway, at six forty-five. We're going to talk about the things that jarred you awake, the weirdest or worst things that jarred you awake for a chance to win $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. We'll chat about it at 645. We'll pick a winner at 915. Also today, coming up at 745, it's our uh, what's becoming a regular visit with the Premier, Loren. Yeah, so the goal is to uh, have a monthly visit with Premier Heather Stephenson. And of course, uh, we have so many questions daily in and around the pandemic, but of course, just the, our economy, how things are working with snowfall and drought and, you know, what are the plans being made for farmers? Like there's a zillion things going on in our life right now. And so we have a couple key questions we're going to ask the premier today, including how she feels about the trekking vaccine mandate. Of course, it's in place on both sides of the border. Both the U.S. and Canada have vaccine mandates for truckers. We know a protest is working its way across the country. Uh, there was more localized, smaller ones in Winnipeg yesterday. And, of course, that bigger convoy is moving in from the West. So what does she think about it? The Premier Saskatchewan's been asked about it. So has Premier Kenny in Alberta. The Prime Minister's been asked about it repeatedly. We want to hear what Premier Stephenson has to say. I could hear some of that activity yesterday. Uh, I heard lots of uh, trucks sort of honking. I couldn't tell where they were. I could just hear it. I was sitting in my apartment. I could hear it in the distance. You know, I hear, I'd hear this occasional and uh, then lots of cars honking as well. So even the, the protest that was in Winnipeg, don't know how big it was, but uh, there is a lot of support. And we've had, we've had lots of people weigh in on our text line as well at 204-780-6868, Greg. So uh, curious to see um, just how many trucks roll into town uh, later today. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because the video that we have seen from across the country shows there's incredible support for this. There are lots of people who are supporting the truckers. The truckers themselves, of course, are, are dedicated to be driving all the way to Ottawa. It will be fascinating to see how many people end up out and about on the roadways uh, today in association uh, with this protest. And Loren, you make a great point with regards to this being on both sides of the border. I understand the frustration here. Uh, we discussed this yesterday. The, we questioned whether or not this is the best way to go. The timing of this with regard to supply chain, 
Uh, also, with regard to the fact that truckers have been on the front lines of this since the get-go and were you know, prepared to cross the border. When others were going nowhere, they were working, they were moving goods and services uh, freely across uh, the border. And so, yeah, even if Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government in Ottawa said this afternoon, we're changing course, we're changing our mind, it doesn't really change anything because the American government would have to do the, it would have to do exactly the same thing. So now we want to turn the chat to boundaries in the workplace. Here's the story from the Wall Street Journal. Zoom calls at 8 a.m., emails at midnight. The workday ballooned during the pandemic, but it's possible to push back without jeopardizing your career. And the story starts with a simple question. Have we forgotten how to say no? And I know there are a good chunk of Manitobans who are still working from home and working remotely and so might feel that they compelled to answer emails at a certain time of day when they hadn't before or to not take those six days as we've discussed in the past because yes they can still go downstairs but Greg that question about forgetting how to say no I think applies to so many who are out there working relentlessly over the past two years because they might have heard from their boss maybe you're in a grocery store please can you come in take this extra shift we don't have the staff we know nurses Doctors have been compelled to work extra overtime because they don't have the staff. And so that question of have we have we forgotten how to say no, I think applies to so many of us. No, no question about it, Loren. And if we can tie this back to the conversation we had yesterday about our mental well-being and exercise, I know for me in conversations with my counselor over the years, when I find myself at sort of a tipping point, uh, you might even call it a breaking point, and this is pre-pandemic, was my inability to say no to a variety of different obligations or things that I perceived as obligations, things that I couldn't say no to or wouldn't say no to. So this is this is an issue for a lot of people to begin with. So Brett, when you have that compounding with the fact, well, you know, your computer's right there anyway. Your office is is either, uh, you know, at the foot of your basement stairs or maybe it's in your kitchen or God forbid it might be in your bedroom. Uh, it's, it's very easy for people who are dedicated for, to their jobs and people who otherwise might have some work-life balance to just say, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. And then before you know it, you've really blurred the lines. Yeah, and for me, uh, I don't have the equipment at home uh, to work from home in the event that, let's say, for example, I you know take a rapid test tomorrow and uh, it comes up positive. Well, then I'm not coming into the building, but I don't have the, the equipment at home to do the job from home. But there was that situation last month where I did get sick. I, I, it was the test came back negative. So I guess it was just a cold, but I was at home. And one of the first questions from couch potatoes, co-host Jeff Braun, and he made, he had meant no harm. There's no malice in this question, but he was, he said, well, can you get a laptop so we can record the show? And I had to kind of say, well, isn't the whole point of me not coming into work because I'm home sick. And it, it was hard for me to do that because I have never called in sick at CJOB because I had a cold, but I kind of had to just sort of draw a line in the sand and say, well, hang on a second, just because this is becoming a new norm where we can work from home doesn't mean I should have to work from home. But I will say we, I think, have been pretty fortunate in this 
company in that our our managers are actually uh, rather than us pushing our managers to give us more work life mm-hmm. balance, it's the other way around where they're yeah. pushing us, Loren, to say, take your vacation. Don't burn yourself out. Maybe you don't answer that email after five o'clock. And, you know, uh, Loren, you referenced last week, or uh, I can't remember what day it was. Time is a flat circle for me. But uh, you referenced recently that uh, management said, you maybe, you know, put your phone down on. Saturdays. And so far, for the last couple of weeks, you've seemed to have succeeded on that front. I'm still looking at it. I'm just not responding to everything right away. So that's a, that's a struggle. It's a struggle for everybody. And it's, and it's real for all of us, I know. So we're going to chat more about this at 935 uh, with a professor from an Ivy School business at the University of Western Ontario. He's basically spent years studying work-life balance. He's surveyed thousands of Canadians, published three different studies. He's talked to all different sorts of different folks. Ironically, I connected with him around 7.30 p.m. last night. My day should have been far over. And then I said, I recognize the irony here of me reaching out to get you to join us. And he said, you want to hear something else? He's like, I'm actually retired. And I'm answering emails oh, at boy. 8 p.m. on work-life balance. <laughs> So we'll see what he has to say at 9.35. It's a chronic issue. Yep. Even when you want to be better at it, there's something that pulls you. It's almost like an addiction, dare I suggest. In case you missed it earlier last night at around 10 o'clock, I was awoken by this. Jump out of bed like, what is happening? I don't... I don't know where this sound is coming from. It's uh, the fire alarm. So I had to get dressed in my groggy state and lumber myself downstairs. And uh, there were two fire trucks there, several firefighters investigating what was happening. Turned out to be a false alarm. Somebody, I guess, uh, got carried away with their cooking. Uh, but uh, it was, you know, it was it was certainly jarring, to, especially in this extreme cold to have to go stand outside uh, while they figured that out. And um, yeah, so we want to talk about the weird or worst things that have jarred you awake. Text us at 204-780-6868 for a chance to win. $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. We'll give that away at 9.15. Fortier, your fire alarm went off recently. I can't remember. Did it wake you up, or was this as you were getting ready for work? Oh, I was just about getting the shower. I had my arm in the shower feeling the, the heat. Is it hot enough to get in? And all of a sudden, I hear the alarm goes off. The exact same alarm, by the way. And, uh, yeah, I was like, well, I better uh, get changed. Go downstairs. All right. So let's go around the horn here. Uh, Loren, why don't we start with you? Oh, I've got a few different crazy wild ones. I mean, even just last night at 11 p.m., I woke up and had that because <gasps> I remember I hadn't plugged in my phone and I thought for sure it was like 6 a.m. and I had not made my way downstairs and it's 11 and you head back to bed. But one of the worst ones was when I was in Pakistan covering an earthquake. This is 2005, I think. And, of course, there's aftershocks to the earthquake. And I remember getting shaken right right out of bed, like, onto the ground, and then hopped up and was like, what do you do? What do you do? And I ran. You know, you're running through this. Like, you don't prepare for earthquakes in Manitoba. Like, I'm a prairie kid. It's not something we talked about often. And I ran to the doorway of the washroom, then jumped in the tub, then got out of the tub and went back to the doorway and then just stood there like, is this right? (laughs) And... (laughs) eventually worked my way back to bed, but I couldn't sleep. Like, I was just like, is that, like, what just happened? And, of course, I get down to the lobby in the morning to head out with the camera guy, and I was like, that was a crazy aftershock, Kay. And he's like, what? And I was like, was there not an aftershock? And so then, since then, I've always wondered, did I just knock myself out of bed and run for it, or did I actually get jostled? 
out of bed from an aftershock. There were aftershocks that morning. It was did happen. But uh, I, it's been one of those most confusing moments I've had in the middle of the night since. Probably should have ended this segment with Loren because I always forget Loren's been in Afghanistan <laughs> and Pakistan and Israel. Jeff Braun, you want to follow Sorry. that? <laughs> you sure. I think if there's an earthquake, aren't you just supposed to run outside so nothing can collapse on? I don't know. That's what yes, I but I think the door frame has something to do with the best spot. Yes. And like, if you're in, because I'm, you're in a, I was in a hotel and I, we were probably seven, eight stories. I'm not sure, but we're in a high rise, right? So you're not going to get out. I'm not getting out of that in time. Yeah, the door, yeah. the door well, frame guess, is like supposed said, to be your place of safety. We wouldn't be experts on a, something like an earthquake because if a, if an earthquake happens here in Manitoba, things have gone terribly wrong in other parts of the world. For me, when I was a kid. When I was a kid, we used to go on these uh, family church retreats every now and then. And so a bunch of families from the church would go to some lodge somewhere. And our minister, Reverend Bob, liked to be the alarm clock for everyone in the morning. And he would walk up and down the hallway playing the bagpipes to rouse everyone. <laughs> and that is a miserable way to wake up. Like, no, there's a reason awesome. that bagpipes are, you know, popular parade music because... <laughs> You listen for 10 seconds and then they walk away from you. Which is not <laughs> Waking up to it is not pleasant at all. Um, well, it's on the subject of bagpipes, one of our uh, listeners pointed out, is it uh, Robbie Burns Day today? Uh, I have to confirm the date to be. on that. According um, to our listener, it is. Uh, oh, yep. Yeah, Tuesday, January 25th. Um, Poitras, what about you? Uh, well, I mean, as a as a... A family and raised in a house of cats, uh, they will at some point eventually wake you up, um, which is, you know, whether to get fed or, or whatever it is. And so I have no qualms about waking any cat up. I, I get revenge on them. If they're sitting there snoozing, I'll poke them and, and bug them. And that's the fun about having about owning a cat is they don't care when you annoy uh, when they don't care when they annoy you. And I don't care when I annoy them. So that's like a little dynamic. But cats what are they are doing vengeful. all the time, though? They're just out and about all night long, it feels like. Well, yeah, they're just like you're stampeding all going on around a, a he- above my head. Yeah. I don't know what they're up to. They don't care. They're, it's like um, I always think of that like uh, for Meet the Parents. Like, uh, you know, Jinxie. You, know Jinxie. When you have a dog. Yeah, Jinxie. That's right. What do you, uh, Greg, what do you prefer? Uh, an emotionally shallow animal, Greg? You know, when you yell <laughs> at a dog, his tail goes between his legs. He covers his genitals. His ears oh. will go down. A dog is very easy to break. But cats, you know, they make you work for their affection. They don't sell out the way dogs do. And I have to agree with that statement. Uh, Mackling, what about you? Well, uh, the most uneasy thing about being a parent uh, is, uh, A, not ever really being able to get to sleep until that your kids turn a certain age and sleeping with one ear or one eye open. Uh, one of our boys uh, used to love to come into our bedroom and just stand and watch me sleep. And so I would wake up and there would be Alexander waiting for me to wake up. That was always startling. But in my most masterful piece of procrastination ever, I was moving uh, they were living in Vernon, BC. My brother and I shared a two-level house. He had already moved out, him and his girlfriend, a couple days before. And noon on Saturday was possession date for this house. The owner of the house had sold the home. Eight o'clock. I hear all these footsteps upstairs. And it's the new owners of the house. They were four hours early. I hadn't packed a thing. I had all the way until noon to get out of the house. Well... My girlfriend helped me pack up some stuff. And in a stroke of genius, they now had an empty truck with their first load of stuff. 
I put my stuff on their truck. They dropped me off at my new, new place. It was absolutely perfect, but I was horrified that I had, you know, really blown it with this, uh, with this new date. It was uh, not a fun experience, very embarrassing, but it worked out for me in the end. Before we talk about advice to families with COVID and as it pertains to isolation, we're asking you to tell us about the weirdest or worst thing that has jarred you awake. We've got a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza to give away at 9.15. And Loren, Paula's got a fun story. So Paula says, when I was about 28, I was living in Shoal Lake, Manitoba, in a farmhouse by myself. Long story short, my bedroom window was two and a half feet off the floor, and my bed was directly beside it. I was awoken to frantic scratching on the window, rolled over to see the claws and giant face of a bear looking right <laughs> at me, separated by only a couple panes of glass. I ran out of the room, shut the door, grabbed a large knife in the kitchen, not sure what the game plan was, if he had actually made it into the house. Bear didn't get inside, but needless to say, I was a bit shaken. I told her, that's crazy, Paula. But then, Greg, the story continues. Yes, so Paula says, the night before that, I had awoken to a bunch of dishes I had on the kitchen table crashing to the floor and the door wide open. I couldn't find anything in the house, so I thought a small animal maybe had gotten in and ran out. I hadn't locked my door and it had a lever style handle, which I had forgotten to lock. The only reason the door was locked the next night was because of that incident. Looking back on it now, it could have been the bear inside my house that <laughs> night. Oh my God. And it got spooked. <laughs> oh boy. I don't think oh that lever is going to do much with a bear if they really want to get in. But uh, Paula, thank you. That was a great story. Wow. Yeah, that is scary stuff. So keep those stories coming. And we've got a great one from Bruce the Parrothead in uh, Loren's favorite place, Nipawa, uh, which we want to share in our next Come on now. segment. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you do if you test positive? for COVID-19, but you don't live alone. The advice is to try to isolate, but how does that work if you have kids, a partner, or even a roommate? Yeah, and I've thought about this even when I was in the past two years had to go get a PCR test and try to isolate until the results are back. I mean, it's just so difficult to do. And right now we know there are a growing number of Manitobans and more families that are in this situation they might test positive as a parent or a caregiver and want to keep it from spreading through the house but man that's really challenging right now with the more contagious omicron and then of course if you have kids and maybe even young kids and they're the ones that aren't feeling well i mean are you really isolating from one another are you really staying apart and so raywat dianandan who is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the university of ottawa he's joined our program often he was asked by richard and julie on the news yesterday for his advice if there's someone vulnerable in your household, like an immunocompromised person or a child under five who can't be vaccinated, maybe you want to consider really wrapping that person up with more measures to prevent them from becoming infected. On the other hand, if everybody else in the household is at least doubly vaccinated, the probability of having a bad reaction to this disease is quite small. So I would treat the household as the infectious unit. And we have to remember to distinguish between individual risk and population risk because of the awesome power of vaccination. For most people, this is not a dire threat to their health. It's just that if enough people get sick at the same time, it's a dire threat to the healthcare system. Right, So we shouldn't be panicking about this as individuals unless, of course, you are one of these unvaccinated or, or vulnerable people. But for everybody else, 
uh, I think we don't have to be afraid. It's, it's, it's protecting society that matters at this point. So if you have a youngster, uh, might be concerned, immunocompromised, can't be vaccinated. I could see where you would want to do as doc, as Ray Watt said in that piece to, you know, isolate and sort of protect them a little bit more, but are you really going to leave your four or five, six year old alone in a room for hours and hours as at a time as a parent when, you know, they might be as, you know, as concerned as you can possibly imagine. Probably not. And then there's on the other side, Loren, there are lots of multi-generational homes where there are older people who might fit the exact same profile outside of the, the vaccination status that, that Ray Watt outlined uh, with regard to uh, being extremely vulnerable. So, you know, th- there are some things that need to be taken into account. I know Look, I have not spoken about this on the air, but we had COVID in our house between Christmas and New Year's. And we're fortunate. Our kids are 15. And so we kind of all segregated and found our own pieces and places in the house to be apart from one another. But, you know, there are meal considerations and and other things that need to be considered. We we managed to sort of keep away from one another for, for four or five or almost six days. But not everybody has that option, Loren. Not even just the option in terms of how to do it with the ages of the people in your house and what their status might be in terms of whether they are or not more uh, vulnerable. And like you're, we're privileged to just have a couple extra bedrooms or one extra bedroom or a basement. Like if you're in an apartment and you've got a family like that, it's a really difficult situation, particularly if one has to come and go from work. If you're double vaxxed, your isolation requirements are different. It's just, it's a very complicated scenario. I'd love to know who's in it and what they've reflected upon and how they dealt with it. 780-6868. What's the weirdest or worst thing that's jarred you awake? $20 gift card, Santa Lucia pizza up for grabs. What's Bruce the parrot head in Nipawa got, Greg? While I was living in Boisevain, I was waking up at two o'clock by a voice in my living room. This must be two o'clock in the morning. I recognized it quickly, but could not understand why the local librarian was in my living room. Turned out one of my cats had stepped on the play button of my answering machine. A few months later, the same mischievous cat figured out how to flush the toilet. Didn't use it, just flushed it. Cats in the bathroom. Uh, I, I never stopped laughing at videos on cats playing with toilet paper, just rolling, like unrolling it. I could I watch cats it all day. Couldn't flush the toilet. They don't have opposable thumbs, Greg. Mister Jinx mm-hmm. learned how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, cats can figure out how to open doors. They can, if they can figure that out, they can figure out how to um, flush a toilet. I'm sure. Forte, did you have a story? Mine would be. It's about two years ago. I'm sleep. I'm like in a deep sleep and all of a sudden I just hear this growl, like a deep dark growl. I woke up, the first thing I thought was demon. There's a demon in my bedroom. <laughs> of course. Like, like literally I was, I was freaking out. The first thing I grabbed was my remote. I wanted to turn on my TV so I had some lights I could see and so my TV turns on. I'm looking around. There's nothing there. Finally I calmed down and I kind of thought to myself and realized, yeah, that was just me with a very deep snore. I woke myself up. up. I woke up with the snore. (laughs) 
I can't be the only one who's done that before. No, oh, no. no. Welcome to my world. <laughs> and then also when you wake up and your like, house coat or something's hanging weirdly over the back of your door and you're quite certain someone's in the room staring at you after you've woken yourself up or you see a glow in your shirt's eyes. Yep. Oh, that's terrifying. Sometimes I wake up on my couch having fallen asleep, and uh, I wake up wearing my my house coat over my my sweats, and I think, I didn't, I don't remember putting this thing on. So I think I'm (laughs) falling asleep, and then I'm cold, and I'm like sleepwalking to get the robe. Like how far, Brett? Like from your living room to your bathroom or to to your bedroom? To the bedroom. It's like 10 feet. So it's probably just something where I'm stumbling over to grab it while I'm sleeping and going back (laughs) back to lie down on the couch. But it's happened a couple of times. I'm starting to wonder what else am I doing while I'm sleepwalking. We are coming up on two years of COVID in Manitoba. And in that time, thousands of questions have been asked and sometimes answered. Yeah, of course, we've had questions on restrictions and mandates, hospitalization numbers, the ongoing challenge to keep that hospital system running while tens of thousands of Manitobans are waiting for surgeries and appointments and other things. Some of those questions can be answered by health officials, but we all know the buck stops with our political leaders. And this morning, to answer some of our questions, we're joined by Premier Heather Stephenson. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Let's start with that mandate question, if we can, because specifically the vaccine mandate for truck drivers crossing the border has led to ongoing protests, a convoy rolling through Manitoba later today. Where do you stand on the vaccine mandate for truckers? So really concerned about, obviously, uh, our supply chain. Um, We're already having some uh, disruption because of the weather, which you've been covering this morning as well. Um, so we're obviously very concerned about making sure that uh, that goods and goods can get to to those who need it, especially food and and so on to our, our truckers. So um, a big you know uh, thank you to all of them who have done an amazing job out there to make sure that uh, we get those goods to to market as well. And so um, you know I, we really need to monitor this very closely to ensure that that doesn't disrupt things. Obviously, it, it causes inflation and other, other issues out there that are uh, top of mind for Manitobans and Canadians. Concerned enough that you're addressing this with the Prime Minister? I mean, obviously, there's still the question in the United States. The United States has its own mandate. But have you had conversations with Prime Minister Trudeau about this based on your concern? So I haven't had any specific discussions with Prime Minister Trudeau yet. It is certainly something we're monitoring. I know we have. I have had discussions with my counterparts, uh, other counterparts across the country as well, who have similar concerns. As you know, in, in Manitoba, we've taken an approach where mandatory vaccines, but then also, um, you know, if not, then uh, mandatory testing. So, um, you know, that's perhaps, you know, a place that they could go with that. Uh, But certainly we'll continue to monitor the situation and and we'll have those discussions, continue to have those discussions. The suggestion is you'd rather they go the route of testing in, if you're not going to get vaccinated, is testing an option? Like, do you, do you actually Yeah, that's, that's certainly where we have gone as a province, and, and I think that that would be an option, uh, you know, as long as it, it doesn't... Uh, it, what we want to do is, is ensure that we're not disrupting the, the supply chain. All right, well, let's move on to the, this next uh, topic. Uh, Premier Stephenson, it's Greg Mackling here. The names of 23 more Manitobans were added to the list of COVID-related deaths yesterday. Hospitalizations are up. ICU numbers drop by one. What are health officials telling you when it comes to whether or not we've hit the peak with regard to Omicron here in Manitoba? Yeah, we're, we're continuing to look at, uh, at the modeling with health officials and others as well and, and continue to get that advice. Uh, from those individuals. Uh, I know that we will be 
um, seeing more modeling updates uh, later this week, and that will obviously, um, you know, that will give us an indication of where we need to go and, and where we're at in terms of, of our peaks. It's Brett McGarry here. Uh, just a question about vaccination status of those in the hospital, because right now the unvaccinated, yes, they are still 11 times more likely to end up in the ICU based on data, uh, looking back on trends of the last few weeks. But the vaccinated are ending up in the ICU. We've got 40% right now who are double vaxxed, 13% in the ICU are triple vaxxed. What do you say to people who might look at this and say, well, what's the point of getting the shot? I mean, we're all going to get Omicron anyway. No, I, I, absolutely. It, it will. It's 139 times less likely to end up in, in ICU than, um, you know, with a third shot. And uh, so some are ending up in ICU. Those can be because of comorbidities and they just have um, they just have COVID. Uh, so you need to be very careful how you look at those numbers. That's part of the problem here is is getting the contacts behind those numbers. And the challenge there is when we're in the looking to this peak of Omicron, Madam Premier, people are saying, well, let's provide more contacts. So have we reconsidered the thought that we should be giving access to yourself or other public health officials on a more regular basis so we can ask and get some of these questions answered? Because otherwise people are left to draw some of their own conclusions, which we don't really want. Yeah, well, what I have asked is that we start to to look at and release the numbers of those that are hospitalized because of COVID or for COVID specifically. Those are numbers that we need to monitor to indicate how many people are ending up in hospital because of COVID, not because of other um, uh, comorbidities. And so, and then just ending up in, you know, with COVID and they happen to have it. So these are numbers that we've been asked, uh, that I've asked to, uh, to start to, to look at. Uh, we should be, um, we should be releasing those numbers uh, imminently, I believe. So uh, I think those will help. Uh, you know, my door is always open. I, I have access every week or people have access every week to, uh, to, uh, to ask any questions of me. And, and uh, you know, here I am today answering some of those questions. How does distincting, uh, making the distinction in those two numbers help? You said that it helps. How does it help? It helps because it, it gives us an indication of those who are getting sick because of COVID and entering our hospital system. There's a number of just because of Omicron and how quickly it spreads throughout the community and, and uh, how contagious it is. People are getting into the hospital without any symptoms um, for COVID, but are, are there because of other issues. And they just happen to have COVID. So there is a distinction there. No, I understand there's a distinction, Madam Premier, but how does it, how does it affect, uh, A, the way hospital personnel, nurses and doctors have to do their job in caring for them? And B, is, is there some predictive nature? Is that why we want to know the distinction? I, I'm, I'm curious it, as it to, to why these numbers are valuable. Yeah, what it does is it gives us an indication uh, who are, are working to ensure if, if we need further restrictions, uh, what, what, what uh, measures we need to take in order to um, ensure the protection of Manitobans. So um, obviously, if they're entering because of COVID itself and are, are in the hospital system and going through the hospital system because of COVID, that we need to monitor those numbers just to see what other public health measures we need to take, what other measures that need to be taken out there to ensure that we reduce the hospitalizations. Premier Heather Stephenson joining us live on 680 CJOB. Madam Premier, thank you very much. We appreciate this. Thanks very much. Have a great day.
We spoke to Premier Heather Stephenson, asking a number of questions about mandates and restrictions. And uh, Loren, reaction? Recap? Well, there's a couple takeaways there. First of all, we talked about the vaccine mandate for truckers and, and what conversations are taking place with Ottawa and where she stood on that. And basically, at the end of the day, the line from the Premier has been the line they've given for the past couple of months is that they, they're more in favor of rules that give an option, i.e. get vaccinated and or provide an option for testing. So it sounds like that's where she stands on the trucker mandate question. But in many ways, it's irrelevant. U.S. still has its mandate in place, so we could change ours here. But unless that changes south of the border, Greg, it doesn't really change things much for truckers who might be crossing to and from the states. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is where they want to go with the data and we talked about context in terms of those hospitalization numbers and COVID versus non-COVID and the breakdown that they're looking to provide. And we know there's going to be people that have concerns about that on both sides. Absolutely. And so I just wanted to clarify with the Premier uh, for personal <laughs> reasons. And also, uh, I know a lot of people on, um, how do I put this, on on both sides of breaking down the data. Because listen, right now there are, uh, th- there are two distinct groups trying to prove that that da- data is uh, is empowering uh, their stance on vaccines and where things are going with the Omicron variant. And so th- that in- information is very important to people on both sides of the conversation. So context, absolutely critical. We've changed the way we talk about and report the numbers here with regards to cases. That is absolutely less important. We know the cases reported by the province every day almost doesn't matter because we know uh, a lot of people are not getting tested uh, through the provincial system. So that number is almost out the window, but we are continuing to look for trends with regard to hospitalization and ICU and hospital capacity, whether somebody came, in my opinion, and this is what we're looking to, you know, sort of suss out, you know, whether somebody comes into the hospital with COVID or not, they still need to be looked after in the hospital if they are in fact hospitalized. Those numbers continue to rise. Are they leveling off a little bit? Perhaps they are. But the the, the reason for that da- data being split up, I think, is important. And if it's in order to try and figure out where the trend is going, I'm by all means, split it out. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's compare and contrast where it has been to where it's going. But let's explain it, right? And I think that's part of the challenge right now is that we have all this information coming at us. We have all these graphs available to us. And then I find myself having to do my own math, which is fine. But, you know, every once in a while, it'd be nice if we had a better understanding as to why we're breaking it down this way and what it means for all of us, Brett, because we get countless messages from people asking us what the data means. And we're not the epidemiologists. We're not the doctors. We're not the ones that set the restrictions. We're just taking the information and doing our best with it. And what I don't want is for people to, like I said to the Premier, draw their own conclusions when we may not be reading it correctly. I think it's absolutely critical. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to push for those answers well, uh, we appreciate the Premier coming on and, and uh, joining us, Brett. It's, uh, it's a luxury that we didn't have for uh, many years on this program. After continuously getting hit with what seems like an endless amount of snow, there is growing concern about how to clear it and where to put it. So I can speak from personal experience on this one. On one side of my driveway, it's essentially a no goal. 
for piling any more snow. And on the other side, it tends to be where the prevailing winds originate. So depending on the wind when I'm out shoveling, I do have some snow storage uh, capabilities in that spot. But Loren, let me tell you, it's nothing compared to what the city is dealing with right now. No, I think a lot of people are running out of room and snow banks and piles have accumulated in some of the worst places for that driving hazard that it can create, right? With the, you're pulling out of a parking lot, a business onto the street from your driveway and you can't see around those mounds. Well, the city said that it could take up to five weeks to get rid of that snow. Well, speaking of parking lots, the parking lot of one of our favorite restaurants, Jackie and I noticed this on the weekend, has a gigantic snow pile in the middle of of that parking lot. It has to be causing concern. Graham Drager is a terrace snow removal, joins us now. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. How much rest have you been getting over the month of January? Um, Well, we don't rest when it snows. I mean, that's the name of the game for us. So it's... uh... It's been a long month. Uh, white gold, still call it that? Depends who you ask. Uh, it gets to a point where I'm, some of us are just looking to have a, a little bit of a rest. But, I mean, again, like I said, that's what we signed up for. That's what we uh, enjoy here. So, Well, give us an idea of the biggest issues for you and your customers. Is it now becoming snow storage? Um, <clears throat> for some of our customers, actually a lot of even our residential customers, kind of like you guys alluded to, uh, are running out of places to put snow around their own property. So we're even getting inundated with uh, just residential consumers that need their snow hauled away as well. So when you haul the snow, where does it go? Um, So the city has four, well, now three, um, open dumps that accept snow, um, and they're located around the city. There is one on Keniston that, uh, actually is closed just because it's reached capacity already. And it can't be inexpensive to, to remove this snow and haul it away. There's, I mean, there's a lot of equipment involved. I've, I have seen personally, and some of our staff have seen as well, uh, the DIYer for snow hauling of their own. So they've loaded it up in the back of their trucks with, you know, maybe a shovel or snowblower and hauled it themselves. Um, but the way we do it, I mean, we use heavier equipment, right? A skid steer, a loader, um, and we're going to load that into, you know, trucks to haul off, basically. So when it comes to the equipment that you have in place, like we've, we, I've received some texts this morning about possible breakdowns with equipment. Does the cold impact how quickly you're able to get it off or get it away or even just impact the equipment itself, Graham? Absolutely. Great question. So cold um, definitely plays a role in the equipment hydraulic lines do not like freezing temperatures. Um, so that's probably one of the the main things that you can have issues with. Uh, and then it depends on how old the equipment is as well. Um, so there is, the cold does play a part in the reliability. It's, it's hard in general on everything, right? From, from people to equipment. Graham, more people, more residential customers, uh, than ever before, you know, people are busy. People are, uh, also like to have maybe a, a little bit of an outlet for their energy. How's uh, business been on the residential side overall? Right now, we are turning away about 20 to 30 people a day. We are, yeah, we're just maxed out on capacity. It's uh, normally, so to paint a picture, normally we have an inrush of, of customers up until about that middle point in December when we get our first big snowfall. 
And then everyone usually has their contractor and it tapers off for the rest of the season. It has been nonstop the entire year this year. So is that a good thing or is that a bad thing or is that a little bit of both? Because obviously the fact that you're busy is good, right? Like we've heard, uh, you know, people in your industry describe snow as white gold falling from the sky. But when you're having to turn people away, that's, uh, you know, that's got to be frustrating. It's, it's frustrating a little bit on a couple of different ways. I mean, at the end of the day, we're here to serve a purpose for the community, right? And, and helping people um, w- with the service that they need. And it's a little bit frustrating in that we can't accommodate everyone on our end. And, it, I mean, I assume it's a frustrating for people calling as well. Um, that After are, continuously are for getting hit with what seems away. like an endless amount of snow, well, I want to tell you before there is go, growing concern Friday, about how to clear it and right across where to put it. Whole driveway, so I can speak right from down. personal experience We're on this one. On one side of my driveway, it's essentially a no-go for piling any more snow. And on the other side, it tends to be where the prevailing winds originate. So depending on the wind when I'm out shoveling, I do have some snow storage capabilities in that spot. Is that true? But Loren, let me tell you, it's nothing compared to what the city is dealing with right now. No, I absolutely. And I mean, kudos to you for uh, for getting your car and tracking them down. Did they end up coming over to take care of your driveway? They came and it was done so quick, and I pretty much like I wanted to offer him like everything in my head that it could take up to five weeks to get rid of that snow. Well, speaking of parking lots, I didn't think we were ever going to get that. Like our other car was trapped in the garage, and the only one on the weekend has a gigantic. Snow but I'm in the middle worried of, that I looked a bit, that parking lot. It has know, to be causing demanding. concern. Graham yeah. Drager is a terrorist <laughs> I, snow I removal. Worry, but, I mean, he joins us now. The, the morning, worst Graham. that could happen is they say no, right? So it's, How it's much very risk common. have you been getting over the month of January? Graham, one last one real quick came in on text um, well, message with regard to the snow that you might be I mean, that's that you might be hauling stuff. away. So is it contaminated, uh, the snow, or... You know, if a uh, farmer called you up and call us said, that? hey, I've got a place for you to park Depends this snow. Depends who you ask. Which, uh, get to is a that point something where that's an I'm, option? Some of us are just looking to have um, a, a little bit of a rest. But so I mean, logistically, it depends on where that farmer would necessarily be located. Usually the dumps in the city are pretty well located. Is it now becoming snow storage? Um, for, instance, for some of our yard, customers, uh, actually a lot of not even our residential customers, it. if it's in a parking lot, alluded to, I mean, then you're going to have uh, a lot of running out of places to put in there. snow no around their own property. So Graham we're Rager, getting um, inundated with snow removal uh, joining us residential live consumers that need their Graham. snow the way Thank well. you very much for this, sir. So when you haul the snow, Absolutely. where does it go? So the city has four, well now three, open dumps that accept snow um, and they're located around the city. There is one on Keniston that uh, actually is closed just because it's reached capacity already. And it can't be inexpensive to, to remove this snow and haul it away. There's, I mean, there's a lot of equipment involved. I've, I have seen personally, and some of our staff have seen as well, uh, the DIYer for snow hauling of their own. So they loaded it up in the back of their trucks with, you know, maybe a shovel or snow blower and hauled it themselves. Um, but the way we do it, I mean, we use heavier equipment, right? A skid steer, a loader, um, and we're going to load that into, you know, trucks to haul off, basically. So when it comes to the equipment that you have in place, like we've, we, I've received some texts this morning about possible breakdowns with equipment. Does the cold impact how quickly you're able to get it off or get it away or even just impact the equipment itself, Graham? 
Absolutely great question. So cold um, definitely plays a role in the equipment. Hydraulic lines do not like freezing temperatures, um, so that's probably one of the, the main things that you can have issues with. Uh, and then it depends on how old the equipment is as well. Um, so there is the cold does play a part in the reliability. It's it's hard in general on everything, right? From from people to equipment. Graham, more people, more residential customers uh, than ever before. You know, people are busy. People uh, also like to have maybe a, a little bit of an outlet for their energy. How's uh, business been on the residential side overall? Right now, we are turning away about twenty to thirty people a day. We are, yeah, we're just maxed out on capacity. It's uh, normally sort of paint the picture. Normally, we have an inrush of of customers up until about that middle point in December when we get our first big snowfall, and then everyone usually has their contractor and it tapers off for the rest of the season. It has been nonstop the entire year this year. So is that a good thing or is that a bad thing or is that a little bit of both? Because obviously the fact that you're busy is good, right? Like we've heard, uh, you know, people in your industry describe snow as white gold falling from the sky. But when you're having to turn people away, that's, uh, you know, that's got to be frustrating. It's, it's frustrating a little bit on a couple of different ways. I mean, at the end of the day, we're here to serve a purpose for the community, right? And helping people um, with the service that they need. And it's a little bit frustrating in that we can't accommodate everyone on our end. And it, I mean, I assume it's a frustrating for people calling as well um, that are, are looking for a solution and are being turned away. Well, I want to tell you before we let you go, I, on Friday we had about three-foot drifts right across our whole driveway, snow-packed right down. We're at it for a couple hours and, and barely made a dent. And then I heard the sound of a beeping skid steer, I think, a couple blocks away and I just got in my car and drove until I found someone clearing snow and begged him to come over to our place if he could within the next 24 hours. He assured me that happens all the time. Is that true that you just get stopped mid job by someone else looking for some help? Absolutely. And I mean, kudos to you for, uh, for getting in your car and tracking them down. Did they end up coming over to take care of your driveway they came and it was done so quick and i pretty much like i wanted to offer him like everything in my house and i was like you just saved us from (laughs) like back aches and maybe a heart attack i didn't think we were ever going to get that like our other car was trapped in the garage and the only one was out so we were lucky i was thankful but i worried that i looked a bit you know demanding graham (laughs) i I wouldn't worry about i mean (laughs) the the worst that could happen is they say no right so it's very common Graham, one last one real quick came in on text message with regard to the snow that you might be that you might be hauling away. Is it contaminated the snow or, you know, if a farmer called you up and said, hey, I've got a place for you to park this snow, would you, is that something that's an option? Um, it, well, so logistically it depends on where that farmer would necessarily be located. Usually the dumps uh, in the city are pretty well located. In terms of contamination, depends where we're hauling from. If it's, for instance, your yard, uh, there's not going to be too much in it. If it's in a parking lot, I mean, then you're going to have a lot of road debris and sand that's going to be in there as well, right? Graham Drager of Terra Snow Removal joining us live on 680 CJOB. Graham, thank you very much for this, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, guys.
But right now we want to talk about how Global Affairs Canada is scrambling to recover from a multi-day network disruption that security and government sources describe as a cyber attack amid Russian-Ukraine tensions. Sources are describing the multi-day disruption as substantial, and both government and security sources tell Global News Russia or Russian-based hackers are believed to be behind it. The cyber attack comes after the Canadian, a Canadian intelligence agency warned of an impending Russian attack or attacks last week. Sources believe the cyber attack is in retaliation for Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie's trip to Ukraine and a Canadian promise of a $120 million loan to Kyiv. It's unclear how much damage the attack may have caused or whether any information was compromised or stolen. Sources say the government expects more potential attacks in the future. So that was Global's Mercedes Stevenson reporting on the cyber attack. And of course, as a story, our next guest has been following closely. Ritesh Kotak is a cybersecurity and tech analyst who joins our program regularly. Good morning, Ritesh. Good morning. So what's going on here? Your guess is as good as mine. And this is the problem is that we don't really have clear, <clears throat> sorry, clear understanding of what exactly this attack was. Was it that systems were taken down? Was it a ransomware attack? All we can do is speculate. So we know what the Canadian government has put out. Actually, a week before that, the UK and the US government also um, warned um, governments around the world around impending cyber attacks. And we kind of look at Ukraine. So we know that Ukraine recently was hit with what we believe is a attack by Russia um, with something called the whisper malware, which essentially goes in, disrupts your systems. Um, it doesn't delete the data, but it completely corrupts it. So it's unretrievable. Um, so we can assume that that's maybe what happened here. But again, we're assuming because the government really hasn't told us what's happening. Ritesh, we deal with multi-level authentication within our organization here for different data and different applications. I was watching the hunt for Red October on Saturday and marveled at, you know, the the double authentication that was required in order to to get those missiles uh, launched or at least to, to turn them on. And it got me thinking about the missile systems that are used these days. They've got to be far more complex. Please tell me that the authentication process is a little bit uh, more strict, but does it also leave them that much more vulnerable because of how complex and dependent they are with regard to technology, uh, internet and that sort of thing? So clearly defense systems are very complex and for, you know, it, it's not just a fingerprint. Um, you know, there's probably going to be different levels of biometric um, keys, you name it. You know, I'm sure that they that they really think those things through. But you bring up a good point, And that's the fact that a lot of things are connected to the Internet. It's not just. Uh, it's not just our computer systems, it's our entire lives. We saw that with pipelines that were hacked. We saw that with food processing plants that were hacked. And these are devastating impacts on everything from energy to food security. So just about everything now is somehow connected or tied to the internet. That's why it makes these types of attacks extremely, um, you know, difficult to to mitigate against, but also the impact of it is so severe to civilian populations. It's not government against government anymore. It's government attacking another government that has a huge repercussion on, on the public. And that's what makes this really scary. Ritesh, you say it's difficult to mitigate against these attacks. Is there anything that can be done to prevent them? So I do believe that prevention is 
is better than a cure here. So clearly Pandora's box has been opened, and just and just as mentioned, you know these these attacks are are devastating. But there are a few things, and that is really having an incident response plan. So if you do detect a attack um, as as a government or as an organization, then you have a plan in place to to essentially minimize the impact that it has. I always say we practice fire drills in the real world. We should be also practicing cyber drills. So what do you do when this when these attacks are actually detected? I think there's a responsibility on vendors on making sure their systems are more secure. We should have them continuously audited. And there's also training and education. A lot of these high-tech attacks are infiltrated in very low-tech manner. So yeah, training and education, uh, holding vendors uh, responsible and having those incident plans will minimize it. But unfortunately, it won't completely eliminate it. Ritesh, I just wanted to follow up quickly. We'd have less than 30 seconds, but it's safe to say these are on the rise. No, it's it's time to take them more seriously, perhaps, than we have in the past because we hear about them increasingly. Absolutely. This is very serious. It's on the rise and we got to take it seriously. We got to invest and we got to have plans. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be re-victimized by these cyber attacks. All right, Ritesh Kodak joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ritesh, thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Thank you. We're asking you for a chance to win a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. What's the weirdest or worst thing that ever jarred you awake? Last time I was just, just falling asleep and the fire alarm went off. And I woke up and thought I was hallucinating and having some sort of a psychotic break uh, because it's just this weird, weird sound. I, I don't think I'd ever actually heard it before. It sounded like this. Yeah, it sounded like something more that you'd hear like... It felt more like a like a nuclear bomb alarm or something. I don't know. But anyway, made it outside. And uh, we're asking you about the stuff that uh, made you wake up. So Loren's going to read our winning text, which had us all in hysterics this morning and kind of panicked, actually. It's pretty scary. Um, but this one is, this listener says, not a story about me waking up, but I was there at the time. When I was in the reserves, we were tasked as instructors at a summer cadet camp at a lake southeast of Kenora. One of the adult cadet officers was extremely difficult to wake up in the morning. He may have enjoyed a tipple or two in the evenings. Everyone liked him, but it was such a pain to get him up. It was decided by those above me that the next time more assertive measures would be taken. To that end, a chainsaw was brought into his room no. and fired up to full throttle. He sat up in bed. His eyes slammed open. You see, he was a big fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, he told me later, he thought Leatherface had finally come for him. So we didn't have any trouble getting him up the rest of the time there. <laughs> and that's, is that Greg's voice? I'm back, baby. You're back. Okay. Uh, well, here's what we'll do. I know you like the runner-up text, so we're going to share that uh, at 9.35. How's that? Because we got to get to our winning text from Paula. Loren, take it away. All right. So, Paula, thank you so much for this because this really had us uh, laughing this morning. When I was 28, I was living out in Shoal Lake, Manitoba in a farmhouse by myself. Long story short, my bedroom window was about two and a half feet off the floor and my bed was directly beside it. I was awoken to a frantic scratching on the window, rolled over to see the claws and giant face of a bear looking right at me, separated by only oh, a boy. few panes of glass. I ran out of the room, shut the door, grabbed a large knife in the kitchen. Not really sure what my game plan would have been if I had actually <laughs> managed, it, managed to get into the house. It didn't get inside, but needless to say, I was a bit shaken. 
Paula followed up to say that actually the night before she was woken to a bunch of dishes crashing to the ground. The door was wide open. She couldn't find anyone in the house. So thought maybe a small animal had gotten in. (laughs) So she locked her door and continued to lock the door. The only reason the door was locked the next night when that bear appeared at the window was because of that dish incident. Looking back on it now, Paula says, could have been the bear inside my house. And then it got spooked. Knocks over the dishes, gets spooked and runs away. Yeah, not unnerving at all to imagine that the bear might have been casing the joint the previous <laughs> evening. Imagine waking up to like a bear's nose on your face, sort of taking a sniff. Uh, that would be instant heart attack. We're going to continue the chat about setting boundaries at work and trying to sort of reset your work-life balance. But before that, Greg, I know you liked Steph's story on things that jarred her awake, or I guess in this case, it was jarring her father awake. Yes, and I suspect this was something that was on her mind for a long time, and it just needed an event like this to get the truth out in the open. This is about a startling wake-up my dad had 20 years ago. When I was 17, I found myself expecting, and it was terrified to tell my dad many sleepless nights One night around 2 uh, 2 a.m., I was in the kitchen getting a glass of water, and the stupid cat knocked the glass (laughs) over, and it shattered on the floor. Now, that's Steph's word, not mine. I did not put the word stupid in front of cat. That's from from Steph. This woke up my dad, and he comes shuffling to the kitchen. He looked at me, and I burst into tears. He said, it's just a glass, kiddo. And I sobbed, it's not the glass. I'm pregnant. He looks so bewildered and shocked. We laugh about it now, and he adores his granddaughter. I was already over five months before I told him. Uh, just love that story. Thanks for sharing it, Steph. That's really cute, Steph. Thanks for that. And and I, I've enjoyed all the cat stories this morning, all the dog and cat stories, doing things that waking us up, uh, bringing back some great memories of my uh, pets. So we want to... Talk about how at eight or at six thirty-seven. Pardon me. We asked you the question: Do you think it's possible to set a better work-life balance, have more work-life boundaries? Yeah. Well, here's what got us talking, Brett. This week in the Wall Street Journal, the headline was Zoom calls at eight a.m., emails at midnight, the workday balloon during the pandemic. But it's possible to push back without jeopardizing your career, Loren. There's no question mark at the end of that statement. Yeah, I thought it was going to go, is it possible? But the the line seems to be that you can do it. The story really caught my attention because it started out with the question, have we forgotten how to say no? So our next guest is Chris Higgins. He spent decades talking to Canadians, surveying and researching about work-life balance as a professor of the Ivy School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. And he joins us now. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. I want to fully confess to our listeners that I emailed you, I think it was seven-ish last night. That was my story. (laughs) (laughs) You replied, hang on, the most important part of this story is that we're coming to you to talk about work-life balance, but not only did you reply to a late late email, you added that you happened to be retired. So what gives? (laughs) Well, I think this will be the the crux of everything. It used to be in in the old days, 10 years ago, to get work-life balance, all you have to do is close down your computer. But now we've got everything in our phones, and our phones are more than just work. Our phones are our entertainment, our social, whatever. 
And so I was doing social stuff on, on my phone last night, and of course, your email popped up, and how could I ignore it? Well, I'm glad you did, and I'm glad you're joining us. I'm curious, you know, you've put out a couple papers, I think at least three on this with a colleague looking at work-life balance situations, looking at technology in the workplace. Is there a way to measure whether or not this has become more challenging in recent years? You mentioned the advent of the phone and adding the phone to our lives and emails to our lives. Is it fair to say that this is probably worse than it's been in, in decades past? I might even say it's almost impossible now to to get work-life balance unless you have incredible discipline. It would take incredible discipline because, I mean, employers are not going to, you know, they want you to work long hours. Why would they put in policies in place to limit your, your, your time? So the people that have incredible discipline will get more work-life balance, but the rest of us, poor souls, will be emailing at 10 o'clock at night. And then burning ourselves out as we go. Uh, we're actually lucky here in that our management, uh, especially since the pandemic has started, has been very diligent in, in encouraging us, even chasing after us to take our vacation, to take a break, to stop re- responding to emails, demanding we not reply to emails that they send us, say, if it's past our bedtime, so to speak. But um, in the event that management wasn't so cooperative, I would probably be in a bad spot because I'm not the most diplomatic person and I'm kind of a probably a pain to a lot of our managers, so I apologize for that. But if you're an employee who feels like, okay, I gotta I gotta figure out how to get the the ship back in line here, how do you go to your employer and say, I this is what I need, how do we make this happen? Without infuriating your boss or getting in trouble. Well, here, here's the deal. I mean, it depends. There's, there's things like, are you career motivated? Do you want to get ahead? If you want to get ahead, in many ways, you're doing anything you can to get ahead, which is working long hours. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a tough one. Uh, I don't have any solutions for you right now. I know I, I play golf, and I insist that everybody I play golf would uh, turn their phones off because it drives me crazy when, you, when you're trying to relax. Um, the one thing we have going for us, though, and uh, I've got put a lot of thought into this, productivity is, is, is way up. When you start working from home, you're way more productive. You don't have the, the social interactions at work. You don't have the meetings that drag on. Zoom meetings tend to be to the point. Um, so I think we're more productive. So perhaps maybe we could use that as a, as a way of uh, getting more you know, time to ourselves because we are more productive when we're working. Chris, uh, the the saying has been attributed or tied to other issues societally. Technology got us in this mess. Technology will get us out. Is there any technology that you're aware of or technology that you could see being created that, that might help us not only prioritize things within our life, but simply not allow those emails, those text messages from certain numbers, from certain email addresses to get to us outside of working hours? Well, how about uh, driverless cars? I mean, that technology is not that far away. You know, you get in your car in the morning if you have to go in. Uh, Let's say your commute time is 45 minutes. There's an hour and a half of productive time you could use right there. Just uh, and then that will free up time for you in the evenings. I have often said I actually miss my commute. I'm working from home right now, Chris, and and I miss the commute because it it allowed the chance to clear my head and take that break and also just reflect on the day. But it was also where I would safely, with hands-free technology, you know, make some phone calls or or 
or as I was pulling out of the parking lot, I'd call up the guests that we wanted to talk to and I'd chat with them on the phone while I'm, you know, from my headset or, or sorry, from my Bluetooth. And so we're missing out on that because we are at home. On the, on the flip side, you talk about being really disciplined. There's a guilt that comes with not answering things. So you can be disciplined <laughs> and, and say, I don't want to do this. But then you feel guilty and you think, I need to do this, A, because I let my colleagues down. Maybe we won't have things set up the next day for meetings or, or what have you. Or you just feel guilty because you're, it's ingrained in you to say yes rather than say no. No, you're, you're dead on right. It, it's going to be tough to... Uh to get back to the old days where, you know, you came home at six because you didn't have your computer turned on, you really had the time to yourself. Uh, no, you're, you're dead on right. It's going to be tough. So then if you, if you do need to, to try to, to reach out to your boss and you want to have a conversation, would you, is there a starting point that you can recommend as to how to broach the subject? If your boss has, Young kids like you do, I don't think it's going to be an issue. If your boss is, uh, say, single or, or kids have grown up uh, and, you know, they're in charge of a division, they want to, you know, have the highest level of productivity, it'll be tougher. So I think it's going to be situation dependent. Um, but then, you know, you, you look up, a lot of people are changing jobs these days, and, the, and I wonder if they're changing jobs for this particular reason. They want a job with more uh, flexibility in their lives. So, when you look at the stats in the States, it's incredible how many people are quitting their jobs and uh, doing something else. Yeah, just in the restaurant business, Brett shared an article with our group the other evening. Maybe it was on the weekend. 200,000 people <laughs> in the service industry have, have yeah. sort of moved on from that industry. And of course, you know, your your wage is only one part of the consideration of, of where you work, Chris. Could you see more work-life balance issues being addressed during the hiring process, uh, organizations that, that really are committed to this having an advantage in, in this economy? I, I truly believe that. Now, it depends who they're hiring. If you're hiring a, you know, a younger kid coming out of university, they're not married, uh, they won't care. Uh, but if you're getting someone, you know, a highly qualified person, maybe in their mid-30s who wants to change jobs, it might be a selling feature for them to, you know, our company, like your radio station, has strict policies. We don't send emails after 8 o'clock at night. You're not required to answer them. Uh, sure, I think it would be a competitive advantage. Chris Higgins spent decades talking to Canadians about work-life balance as a professor of the Ivy School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Have a good day. And I love the cat story. <laughs> Chris joining us live on CJOB. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.